Siobhan Scott is a therapist practicing in California with a specialty in addictions and technology. In 2009, along with co-author Nels Clark, she released the book Game Addiction, The Experience and the Effects, a book which takes a neutral look at the phenomenon of video game addiction from multiple angles. Not only a therapist that has worked with gaming addictions, she's also been a gamer herself, logging many hours on games such as EverQuest. She joins us today to talk about what to be on the lookout for for video game addiction and what you can do about it. Yvonne Scott, welcome to Flip Switch. Thank you. This week we're talking all about the phenomenon of video game addiction. Our population, of course, deals with bipolar and depression. So with bipolar, you have issues of impulsivity and depression, you have issues of isolation, both which are kind of big factors or traditionally have been big factors with video games. One of the things we've had problems with in our studies of video game addiction is getting a clear, consistent definition of what video game addiction is and how it's either similar or different to other forms of addiction. Uh, What is your take on the actual definition of video game addiction? Well, you know, this is something that people argue and argue and argue about, as I'm sure you know. And I always go back to, is it necessary to call it addiction to recognize that it can be really unhealthy overplaying? So I come from that point of view that whether, you know, some people just feel that addiction is a really pejorative word. Don't call me an addict. It's not heroin. I'm not doing something illegal. And that's fine. That's completely understandable that they don't want to be labeled. But at the same time, I think everybody who plays has probably had times when they've overplayed and had negative consequences from that, or they know people who dramatically overplay. So when it comes to looking at those questions, well, addiction is usually defined as doing something that impairs your functioning. And by that, I mean, is it causing you to have problems in school? Is it causing you to have problems in relationships? Are you isolating? Are you withdrawing from people? Are you not doing the kinds of things that you used to do? You know, you've given up activities that you used to enjoy. Is it all you think about? Is it the only thing that makes you happy? Do you get a sense of adrenaline rush? We know that when people are doing drugs that they have an excessive amount of dopamine that's released, which is that pleasure hormone that everybody's talking about with addiction. And there have been so many studies that show people have that same kind of dopamine rush when they're gaming. So behavioral addictions are, I think, the new thing that's being studied, and there are all kinds of behaviors that cause these same kinds of problems. Gambling has been, you know, looked at as a behavior that's an addiction for a long time now. And I think just because the whole phenomenon of video gaming is so new, and particularly with the MMO genre, this is just something that we're, you know, trying to become more astute about understanding right now. You made the reference to gambling. Uh, technically, gambling is, uh, you know, a random interval kind of reinforced gaming. And now we're talking about video games. And some of the developers we talk to, and they're pretty open about they use kind of psychological tricks that are very, very akin to uh, a casino. Very much. Is yeah. uh, is 
I guess on the spectrum, is video game addiction similar or comparable to gambling addiction? I think it's very comparable, and I I think in some ways it may be a bit more insidious. And again, I've never been a gambler. I have been a gamer, so I understand gaming a lot better, I think, than that. But I've had gamers tell me the same, or um, game developers tell me the same thing, is that they've studied gambling and they have built into the game mechanics the same kind of processes. I think the thing that happens with um, gaming, particularly the MMOs, is you have the social embedding quality, too, where you really bond with people. You have to keep up with the other people in your guild. There's that sense of, I owe folks loyalty here, so I have to keep playing as much as they're playing. I have to be at the raid, or they're going to call me on the phone. And I think that's one thing that keeps it in a category that's rather unique and perhaps a bit more insidious than gambling. One of the traditional things that has always been disturbing about console games to parents, I guess, and even to to the casual gamer, has been that people who overplay tend to become very isolated and kind of antisocial in their own way. Whereas with the invention of MMOs and even now console games that are having online spaces, by definition they are social. Do you consider that truly being social? Is that kind of interaction social? Does it leave something out? And if so, do we need to modify how we think of addiction in that sense? I think, you know, and I really, when I was playing an MMO, I used to play Lineage 2 a lot when it first came out. I was in beta and then played for about two years after that. And I really played for social reasons. I was rather depressed at that point in my life, so I can certainly own the the depression vulnerability there. And I was somewhat isolated socially, so I was really enjoying the people that I met in the game. And I would log in just to connect with them. They would log in to connect with me. And I don't think that's a negative thing, but is it the same as real-life socialization? And I don't think so. I just spoke with somebody last week who has been immersed in gaming his entire life. He's 25 years old. He flunked out of high school because of gaming, but he did teach himself programming and now works very successfully for a software development company, but is terrified to the point that he has panic attacks, shakes, sweats, hyperventilates when he's meeting a real-life woman. He's fine with women in the game, but he's never had a date in real life. And Um, I think you could say, well, that's a bit of an impairment then. And so gaming, socializing and gaming, while it has value, I don't think it's quite the same thing. As technology moves forward, to some extent, I guess even to to the extreme player, it's hard to think of somebody becoming highly addicted to Pong or uh, early in television Atari games as to what how easy it could be now. It's certainly with the kind of movement towards overlapping uh, of technologies where you can jump from your console to uh, the internet to you know Facebook to your iPhone so easily. Is it going to become easier or do you see it uh, becoming easier to fall into these pitfalls going from casual gaming into too much? Yeah, I think we're really, I'm real interested in neuroscience, and I'm, I'm a psychotherapist, meaning I talk with people about their feelings and their problems. I'm not a an actual brain scientist, but I, I study it, and I'm really fascinated with it. And when we get into the area of neuroplasticity, you know, we're changing brains based upon what we do lots of. And if we're highly engaged in electronic media, our brains are developing to um, basically get very, very good at that and not so good at other things. 
And so I think the more electronic media we become immersed in, whatever it is, we're kind of setting ourselves up to maybe not function so well in other areas. When I talk with people who are trying to get out of, you know, the game addiction cycle, um, one of the things we always work on is what are other activities you used to enjoy that you don't enjoy anymore. And it generally gets back to things like music, playing guitar. Um, people have been in bands. They've let that go. And, you know, again, the brain has kind of changed. And so it's a process of getting back to those other neural pathways and um, rediscovering, redeveloping and kind of re reformatting the brain there. Uh, you, you mentioned this kind of the cycle that people go through with um, problematic game playing. Um, is there are there typical features that tend to overlap most people's experience of uh, video game addiction or playing uh, problematically? Yeah, you know, they, they skip activities that they used to enjoy, whether they be sports activities, social activities, or as I say, things like playing music. Um, they begin to prefer um, their online friends to their, um, you know, to the people that they knew in the real world to the point that real world friends tend to move on and leave them behind. Um, I talk about self-care starts to deteriorate, so a lot of people just start skipping meals to continue playing. Hygiene stops um, being a priority. Sleep is really important um, to maintaining mental health, especially if we're talking about things like bipolar disorder and depression. And the game mechanics are really designed to interrupt normal sleep patterns. I mean, people will just play all night long. I know I've done that, you know. Um, academic problems, job problems, um, being late for school, um, missing classes. I know one person who was um, um, discharged from the Army because she couldn't get up in the morning because she was gaming all night long. Um, seeming to care more about gaming than anything else. It's sort of the only thing that a person thinks about. It's the only thing that gives them pleasure or excites them. And just they don't start accomplishing the normal development milestones like getting a driver's license, as I mentioned, the other guy beginning to date, feeling comfortable with applying for jobs, having mood changes like becoming irritable real easily when being unable to play, and then a lot of people experience outbursts of anger when they're asked to stop gaming or when they can't can't game as much as they want to. We're really talking about a failure of self-regulation which is something that if we have a mood disorder, we struggle with self-regulation anyway, you know, the ability to naturally manage our minds and bodies and, and maintain a healthy state of well-being. We'll return with more of our interview with Siobhan Scott in just a moment. Stay tuned. Hello, I'm Mark Smith, the founder of the Poetry Slam, and I'm going to do this poem for you. It's kind of a signature poem. It goes like this. When you get to the top of the mountain, pull the next one up. Then there'll be two of you roped together at the waist, tired and proud, knowing the mountain, knowing the human force it took to bring the both of you there. And when the second one is finished, taking in the view, satisfied by the heat and perspiration under the wool, let him pull the next one up, man or woman, climber of mountain, pull the next hand over the last jagged rock to become three, Two showing what they've already seen, and one knowing now the well-being with being finished with one mountain, with being able to look out a long way towards other mountains, feeling a temptation to claim victory 
as if mountains were human toys to own. When you ask, how high is this mountain, with the compulsion to know where you stand in relationship to other peaks, look down to where from you came up and see the rope that's tied to your waist, tied to the next man's waist, tied to the next woman's waist, tied to the first man's waist, to the first woman's waist, and pull the rope. Never mind the flags you see flapping on conquered pinnacles. Don't waste time scratching inscriptions into the monolith. You are the stone itself. And each man, each woman up the mountain, each breath exhaled at the peak, each glad I made it, here's my hand. Each heartbeat wrapped around the hot skin of the sun-bright sky, each noise panted or cracked with laughter, each embrace, each cloud that holds everyone in momentary doubt. All these are inscriptions of a human force that can conquer conquering, hand over hand, pulling the rope, next man up, pulling the rope, next woman up, sharing a place, sharing a vision, room enough for all on all the mountain peaks, force enough to hold all the hanging bodies dangling in the deep recesses of the mountain's belly steady till they have the courage, till they know the courage, till they understand that the only courage there is is to pull the next man up, pull the next woman up, 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 up. We now return with more of our interview with therapist and video game addiction specialist Siobhan Scott. In this half of the interview, we'll ask her about responsibility in the gamer, the overlapping of technology, and signs to be on the lookout for so that you or someone you care about doesn't fall down the video game rabbit hole. When we talk to designers, you know, we always ask them about their feelings on uh, video game addiction, and they typically say the same thing, which is, you know, it's, that's too bad, but ultimately... It's the responsibility of the individual to overcome and kind of regulate themselves. Considering specifically teens and young adults who are in a developmental state, is there a point where that argument doesn't quite wash as much? As I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that argument ever washes because no matter what age we are, by nature, we're not logical beings. You know, the emotional limbic system is really running the show with our decision making for most of us, much of the time, not the logical cortex. And so games are designed to kind of bypass that logical cortex and really hit us on that emotional level. It's amplified in people who are younger or people with self-regulation problems and other kinds of psychological vulnerabilities. And I don't think that argument ever washes. You know, we like to believe in control and logic and that people can um, make wise choices. And I think all we have to do is look around the world and look at the mess the world is in and say this, this whole thing, whether it be politics, the environmental issues going on, People aren't very logical creatures because we're not doing what's smart most of the time. We're not doing what's good for us. Are there any groups that you found that are more at risk or less at risk or either have some kind of built-up defense or weakened defense against falling into these little traps? 
Yeah, I think anyone with with a mood disorder is more at risk because they're struggling with self-regulation anyway. And again, I can I can own depression, and it's far too easy when you're depressed to just want to escape and um, not want to go out and have the energy to meet the challenges of you know work that day or whatever it is that you need to do. And gaming just helps you kind of dissociate from that and take your mind off it. And then certainly with things like bipolar disorder, where a person has lots of energy. Um, lots of perhaps sometimes aggressive feelings and they're not sleeping, they're really at risk of just getting into a game and just kind of going crazy with it. So I think mood disorders are really predisposing conditions. People on the Asperger's kind of spectrum where they don't naturally know how to connect with other people very well in real life also like games because there's a fixed rule set that they can understand and it's always predictable for them. And so that's another group that people will just kind of find a niche and game and game and game when actually they could be working on overcoming some of those deficits that they have in real life. But it it takes energy to do that, and it's too easy to just get caught up in the game world. We we entered this whole topic with kind of the horror stories you hear about the worst of the worst of the video game addicts. But as we've kind of researched it, we've come across a lot of people who speak of the of the positive benefits of gaming in certain instances. What are some of the positive aspects of gaming? I think the ability to problem solve. I mean, I'm not, even though I've enjoyed gaming and have gamed a lot, I'm not a competitive person and I'm not a real strong player technically. So I'm probably not somebody that would be highly valued, you know, in a group (laughs) necessarily other than because I'm friendly and fun to talk to. Um, But my sons are both amazing as far as their technical gaming abilities. And it's really interesting to watch them be able to do problem solving in the game and use strategy. And I think sometimes those skills can be developed. You know, the use of um, symbolic literacy is certainly important. So there are, and you know, the social things can be fun. There's nothing wrong with that as long as it's not replacing real life. You know, and people who naturally have abilities and good self-regulation, they can kind of time themselves. You know, they can pay attention to the signals from their body. Well, I'm hungry. Need to take a shower. I need to get some sleep. I prioritize getting to school in the morning because I do care about you know not flunking out here. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing, and that's my position on gaming. It's like nothing is bad in and of itself. It's really the individual and the type of gaming and can it be very destructive yes for some people it's not fortunately if that's the case then what should friends and family of of anybody i guess be on the lookout for if they want to kind of keep that monster at bay so to speak yeah i think it's really helpful if friends speak up Um, family members particularly if it's parents People tend to really resist um, intervention from parents. They they get very hostile about it. It's just kind of the nature of being um, an adolescent or, uh, you know, in your 20s if you're still living at home and your parents start trying to tell you what to do. People automatically resist that. Um, but I think it's really helpful if friends give feedback and encourage somebody to say, hey, come on, let's go out, let's do this, um, let's... Um, you know, go out and meet some friends or whatever the activities are. Almost anything can be better if somebody's caught up in gaming just to get them get them out and get them um, busy. 
Hmm. So I think just people commenting on it. Looking at video gaming as not just, I guess, one point you could look at gaming as one thing, but now there are so many different types of games. There's console gaming, there's MMOs, there's character-driven stuff, and then there's the Zynga-type games, which are more... Uh, have a large female base. Is there a one area of gaming that you see, at least personally, as a more problematic type of gaming or area that is more rife with these problems than other areas? I always, you know, when I get these extreme cases where there's been domestic violence, people, you know, I've had cases where kids have pinched mom or dad or mom has hit the kid over the head with the laptop. I mean, there have been these just out of control, extreme kind of situations or people going 48 hours without stopping. It's usually the MMOs, if not exclusively the MMOs. And again, that, that has to do with the social structure, the length of time it takes to raid, and the grind involved. And that just seems, you know, it's the kind of game that you just can't stop. And that's one thing that parents will say, just turn it off, just stop. And I used to tell my son that, come upstairs, stop, you know, stop the game. You can pick up the game later. And they would always say, we can't, we can't, you know, we can't leave. And until I had played and understood how um, immersed and enmeshed you get in the process of an MMO, I, I could see how you can't leave. You can't leave your friends. And that's the, the manipulative part of it. Hmm. What do you see for the future of uh, studying uh, video game addiction? Uh, what, from what we've determined, there's been like a lot of debate on uh, how to approach it and uh, even what it is. Uh, what do you see as the future of the study of it? You know, I, I see more and more people doing research. Um, I get contacted a lot by people working on their master's thesis and um, doctoral research. So, you know, I can't say... In, for certain what direction this is all going to go, but certainly with the brain imaging studies, um, the understanding, increasing understanding of the role of the neurotransmitter system in all kinds of addiction, um, I think probably in the next five years we're going to be um, a lot more aware of things than we are now. Um, a lot of people still don't know what an MMO is. I work with a lot of therapists just trying to educate them on what gaming is because they tend to be, you know, over 40, over 50 years old and they're still thinking of, you know, Mario Brothers and console games and the kind of things that their kids played many years ago. And so they find it kind of ludicrous to even hear the term video game addiction because how could somebody be addicted to video games? Well, they, they don't understand that we're really talking about virtual worlds, you know, and developing entirely new identities in those worlds and the power of that. So I think in the next few years we're going to see a younger generation of clinical people who have a lot more insight and we'll know more than we now definitively. Hmm. Uh, one, one other question. Um, Let's say somebody actually actively has a problem and everybody kind of knows it. What what can be done for that person? Well, um, there's a lot that can be done and it can get really psych jargony. Um, but I like to just start with helping somebody clarify their goals. You know, do you want to be playing 15 hours of World of Warcraft in five years, you know, living with mom and dad? Well, no, of course not. Well, what do you want to be doing in five years? Okay, then let's break that down. How are you going to get there? How are you going to break the the long-term goal into little steps? 
and what would that look like and try and give them as many specific ideas as they can you know, in order to find out how to get there. Um, I like to talk about the, the three S skills, you know, self-monitoring, self-awareness, and self-correction, um, which is basically being aware of what you're doing, of what you're feeling, of what your choices are, and how to monitor when you get off track. And that's something that you can actually, if you're a counselor, you can actually help somebody learn to develop that. Um, it's nice if people don't want to give up gaming if they can at least switch to games that aren't so highly, if we want to call MMOs the most addictive type, um, switch to games that they can stop, you know, if they want to stop. Right. And if that doesn't work, um, try and help them find strategies just to find other hobbies, other interests, and they need other pleasurable activities other than gaming because we're really, again, talking about kind of rewiring the brain and getting back to um, having an identity in real life, which is something people have forgotten how to do. Do, do you see um, uh, one of the things we've heard from, uh, I guess, both parents and gamers and even uh, design, especially designers, is that there's a certain kind of personality type that would, um, if it wasn't gaming, it would just be something else. Um, I think that's a myth. Yeah. I think that's a myth. That's a huge myth. Um, this whole term addictive personality, um, if you really research that in psychology, there's no there is no such thing as an addictive personality. There are psychological vulnerabilities that people have. And as you mentioned, people that are socially isolated, people that are depressed, people that have problems with self-regulation. But those can be all kinds of different people, and there isn't one type of personality. And I know so many gamers that have never used substances, you know. Um, they don't drink. They don't... Um, smoke pot. They just have no interest in drugs and no interest in gambling. I mean, they're not these addictive people that are just going to find one thing or another thing or another thing. Um, sometimes it's just being um, in a vulnerable place and having the wrong kind of game and it just takes off with a life of its own. Siobhan Scott, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been delightful. You can learn more about game addiction, the experience and the effects available at local bookstores and online retailers like Amazon.com. You can also check out Siobhan's blog at dreamreader.com slash Siobhan Scott, which will also be in our link section on our webpage. You've been listening to Flip Switch, the Bipolar and Depression Connection, brought to you by the Child and Adolescent Bipolar Foundation.